This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. Hello there, my friend. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So you know the reference to Earthlings, right? Uh, what is it? Earth Day or something? I was checking out the analytics earlier oh, right. on where people listen to the Territory Story podcast from. Oh, yeah. And I thought, and I thought oh, this is good. You know, and you get your countries and you get your, your, your different regions within the countries. And I thought I'd drill down even more. And right. guess what I found out? What? That 100% of our listeners come <laughs> from the planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I saw that the other day too. Yeah. That is such a weird fact. I don't know why they bothered, but anyway. Right. So what's happening for you today, tonight, Pete? Uh, well, as, as is now becoming tradition, I had a beautiful uh, spaghetti bolognese and uh, prepared for our chit-chat and um, I lit a fire because it's freezing here, <laughs> as, as it always is. <laughs> Even though I vowed I'd never actually uh, mention that again. Right, right. Well, I've got to tell you, mate, since this COVID-19 stuff has been happening, um, we're doing a lot more cooking at home. Uh, we're doing a lot more eating with the family. Uh, it is quite, it's been quite a, a remarkable change in our lifestyle. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that 100%. And... I've said this several times. There's a lot of bad that's come from this whole thing, but there is some good as well. Um, in, I guess the long term will determine what exactly that is, but obviously more family time, uh, more cooking at home, I, I would completely agree with that. And um, I, I think more sense of um, uh, community, you know? Mm. Well, family community, um uh, definitely. I don't know about other communities other than just uh, I, I'm, I'm Zooming a lot more. I think yes. I, I would have had three Zoom meetings today. Yep. Um, mm. And two of them with, with my own staff. Okay. Yeah, well, my sense of community is that, you know, neighbours are now talking to each other and, um, you know, people are looking out for each other that, that perhaps previously wouldn't have been. Right. Um, I just, I'm seeing that more anyway. Okay. Did you uh, want to introduce us to uh, our special guest today? Absolutely. We're heading overseas again today. And, uh, Leon, uh, we, we've spent time in Europe. We've spent time in uh, North America uh, and, you know, other parts of the world. But somewhere that we haven't been before and, and I'm very interested to go to is, is the Middle East. Uh, obviously, it's close to my heart, having lived there on a couple of occasions, as, as you well know, and ribbed me for regularly. Um, so I reached out to an old friend of mine who, who lives in Dubai. Um, his name is Wissam Kamal Adin. And uh, he and I worked together in Dubai when I was last there. Well, we, we worked for the same uh, group of companies, not directly together, but we've kept in touch over the years. And welcome to the Territory Story podcast, Wissam. 
Hey, Peter, Leon, nice to catch up with you. Thank you, mate, and thanks for joining us. Um, look, uh, as I said before, the COVID-19 uh, virus has obviously swept the world and uh, Dubai is not immune to that, although Dubai is probably best known in the Western world for, uh, you know, it's glitz and glamour and tall buildings and um, people with lots of money and flashed cars, which you probably fit into a couple of those categories. I used to. <laughs> I've got an alpha now. I had a, I had number one fifty of one hundred and fifty HSVs that were came out here until I blew the engine up, and it's uh, been sitting in repair for six months now. So I'm driving like a two liter Alfa Romeo around. <laughs> yeah, wow. not not much of a gust guzzler anymore. So Wissam is originally from Melbourne, as am I, but we don't we didn't know each other from there. We actually met at a at a conference in Dubai. Do you remember that? Um, I don't remember the exact time we met. Um, I remember when you were working for that Sharaf group. Yeah, so you were the real the, estate guy. Yeah, yeah. The Sharaf Industries get together for all the company general managers and directors oh, yeah. to meet each other and hopefully do more business together. But uh, unfortunately, the GFC saw to the end of a lot of those businesses. But one thing I loved about that fact is that you had been in Dubai for a while at that stage anyway, um, but Wissam was very, very proud of his Holden HSV V8 <laughs> car, and I thought, that's brilliant. You, you, can't, you, you can take the Aussie out of Australia, but you, can, you certainly couldn't take it out of him, which was awesome. Uh, yeah, right. no, it was fun. I mean, I missed that car a lot, actually, because I had a lot of work done to it and... You know what it's like here, Peter. A lot of people had their Lambos and Ferraris and Porsches. And at the time, it was quicker than a 911, mm. easily. Um, mm. So it was fun. Mm. Um, I had a manager at the time. He used to work for HP. No, no, Cisco. Cisco Systems. Yeah. So he had just bought his brand new Porsche and we lined up a few times. It was fun. <laughs> I miss those, drag- <laughs> those drag racing days. Yes, uh, yeah. the old back of shakes I had road days. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and that's one of the great things about Dubai, by the way. I mean, um, it's very modern. The roads are beautiful. Um, I think the problem now is they've got a speed camera every like three, four hundred meters. But back then they didn't, and they didn't really care. And mm. it was fun. It was sort of having you know a perfect environment to have fun with. Uh, from a car perspective. But, yeah, it's, it's changed now like everywhere else, I guess. I've told this story a few times, and apologies if I've done it on the podcast before, Leon, but I remember uh, I used to play golf every week out of Jebel Alley, and uh, that was probably 20 minutes from where I lived. Uh, the speed limit, 120 kilometres an hour, speed cameras every couple of metres along that road. But uh, a friend of mine turned up there one day. I, I had a big um, big Chevrolet ute thing uh, pick up as they call it in america or as we call it a, a ute and um he had a big ford thing and he turned up and he was he was quite despondent i said what's what's the matter mate he goes oh you're not going to believe it i just got pulled up by the police on the way here i said really he goes yeah but it was so weird because the guy pulled me over and i said officer i was not speeding like oh, i'm not sure why you're pulling me up and the policeman said to him mate i know you weren't speeding you're going too slowly. It's it's 140 before the speed camera goes off. You do 139, sir. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right. So, with, with Sam, you were born in Melbourne. What the heck are you doing in Dubai? So, born and raised in Melbourne in Bentley, and um, I just wanted we we had a, a a very famous family restaurant called Cleopatra's in Melbourne. Like it was one of the I think the first Arabic Lebanese food places in in the state. Very famous, very awesome place. Um, people used to come from overseas just to sort of try our food. That was fun. And um, I got into university. I did computing and info systems. Don't know why. I just didn't know what else to do, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and then so after about a year of working for, for HP, I managed to convince them to move you. Well, I came up with a new technology which um, helped us very efficiently get, um, at the time, New Zealand and India into what we call the Asia-Pacific region, into, uh, yeah, saved millions with the way we did it. So then um, I got a call one day from this Australian woman, funnily enough, uh, from the UAE who was living in Netherlands, I don't know, and she was trying to do the same thing for Israel, Greece, Turkey, blah, 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 blah. And I helped them out after hours. And from one thing to another, I ended up getting a really good job offer to come and start HP's services operations in the Middle East. And um, yeah, it was fun, man. I mean, I came out here for like a couple of years on really good money. I bought like, a, I'm a car guy. I mean, that was fun. <laughs> you know so I bought like a BMW 740. It was like, 298 horsepower. I still remember the figure. That was huge back then. And um, I used to go to Abu Dhabi on 250Ks an hour. Wow. And um, that were like some of the best times of my life. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's how I ended up here. And it was a two-year thing. And then you know how it goes. Like uh, when you don't really care, I guess you end up being really good at stuff. And um, <laughs> it was one thing after another after another. And yeah, 20 years later, I'm still here, I guess. Um, I love the place. So beautiful people, a beautiful country. Um, you know, made a lot of really good friends here. It's a bit of a shame some of the good ones leave, like you know, like Peter went back to Australia, and I have a lot of examples like that where you become good friends with people, and then you know, a year or two later they go back home. But other than that, it's a, a beautiful place, and you know, my three boys are born here, and they're a bit lost where they come from because they're sort of Arabic background, Australian. In, but one UAE, UAE, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, What's their accent? Was that um, international? <laughs> <laughs> we call it international. Hybrid. Yeah, it's a hybrid. I mean, it's not American or British or Australian. It's international. It's a nice accent, you know. And just um, just for our listeners' benefit, um, uh, because you know, I've been asked this a few times. Uh, what passport do they carry? So they carry an Australian passport. Um, mm. So the UAE is a bit weird. So you can get residency. You can even get 10 years residency here now. Um, but it's not like uh, Australia or US or other European countries where your kids can adopt that passport. And um, I think that's a bit of a weakness. Mm. But at the same time, there's, you know, there's 900,000 like Emiratis, and there's, it's a population of 10 million people. So I think they made a decision early on to not 
to sort of, let's say, in the front, to hang on to their culture. Yep. And um, otherwise, I guess now it would be like a completely international place if if they allowed people to, to become Emirati, let's say. And I'm not going to say if that's good or bad, mm. but I can see the benefits and and the negatives from, from them doing that. As, as an Iranian once uh, volunteered to me, um, there's benefits in that because if you got eight Iranians in the same room together, they'd overthrow the country. So, <laughs> um, look, I mean, who knows? It's true, and that's the funny thing, Peter. I mean, so this country, the UAE, is very close to Iran. For the people that don't know, it's just over a, the Gulf, a bit of water, and a lot of Emiratis are actually originally Iranian. Mm. So. You know, there and for the people that don't know, so the I'm not Muslim myself, but from an Islamic perspective, you have two main um, sects in Islam, which are Shia and Sunni, and so the Iranians are the Shia guys, and so you have like a considerable percentage of Shia is uh, Muslims in in the UAE, which are Emirati. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, and and that goes for the whole whole GCC. But but you're right. And and just to be clear to everyone, I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but every single Iranian I've met has been an awesome person. <laughs> um, they've been, like, honestly, they've been fun. Girls to guys to families. I mean, our neighbors are Iranian. And I'm addicted to their food a little bit and the saffron that they use. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, um, they like to party and... Uh, you know, if you meet people who are a bit older, they can tell you about the days of when, uh, you know, the, the, the party scene in Iran on the Gulf was as big as it's been anywhere in the world. Yeah, you had that 60s and 70s where these all these country, Islamic countries were into miniskirts, you know. You see yeah. footage from Cairo and Tehran. Um, Beirut's still like that. I mean, that's okay, but even... Damascus, and then you know, and then there was this switch where they covered it all up. Unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So what's the uh, what's the difference between a Shia and a Sunni? So okay, so from a religious perspective, I'm I I don't have an advanced understanding in any way. So if anyone needs to correct me, I I'm, I appreciate that. But this is my basic understanding. Okay, so when um. When Muhammad the prophet uh, passed away, there was a misunderstanding of who should take over as leader. So the Shiites, which are the Iranian guys, said that the leadership should be passed on to family, so much like a monarchy sort of system. Mm. And the Sunnis said, no, it should go to his friends which really <laughs> don't know what's going on. And that's, and that's the basics of it. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into much more than that, but if you want to summarize it into a paragraph, that's it. That's the I difference. And, um, and that was it. And so from then on, you had this split of, I mean, the Sunnis, which believe that it should go to the friends, uh, much outnumber the Shiites. So you have Saudi Arabia, for example, which is... Sunni, they said, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, let it go to the most qualified friends. And then you have the Iranians who said, no, 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 there's a history here in a family. 
the guy's got a lot of power. Why the hell would he give it away to his friends? He'd probably give it to his his family, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and that's where it comes from. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's caused a lot of unrest. You know, it's mm-hmm. like such a small thing. It's a small thing, but a big thing as well. But that's that's been like the main division as far as I, I've seen it. I understand it. So maybe it's being unfair asking you these questions, and I'm just asking you out of curiosity more than anything else. I mean, from as an outsider looking in, it seems to me that the, the Shias have like, you know, the Ayatollah and they have these sort of clerics that issue decrees and fatwas and stuff like that, right? Whereas you don't see, I mean, I don't see that with the Sunnis. Is, is that, what's, what's that all about? I mean, okay, so if you're going, looking at it from an extremist perspective, so, okay. So the Sunnis, let's start with them. So if you look at Bin Laden, he was a Sunni. Yeah. So, um, you know, Saudi, Sunni, and... Um, their extremism was that they, my understanding, just to be, not to, you know, not to not to say anything that's wrong, I guess, but but the Sunnis were basically like, you know, like, I mean, they had an extremist movement like everybody, like uh, anyone could have, I guess. And their thing was, you know, we want to go back to the way Islam was, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever. And... You can go back to whatever it was, the 9-11 attacks or, or whatever, and they, they made a big impact. Now, the Shiites had, have their own extremist movement. So the most well-known one was Hezbollah, mm. right? So Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon is a Shiite extremist movement that's dedicated to the cause of you know, getting Israel out of the, the Middle Eastern countries. And they did their thing. And I mean, they're loved and hated for good and bad reasons as well. Same with the Sunnis. So they both got their extremist movements, um, Leon. They both have. But I find that the the Hezbollah ones are more localized on a common cause. You know, where, you know, for example, yeah, we want to do this one thing. Um, And it's political as well. I mean, you know, let's not fool ourselves. But the Sunnis, you find, have almost sort of like terrorized everybody just mm. recently from what I've seen. Yeah, those recent movements, <laughs> Al-Qaeda, yeah. No boundaries. Uh, I'm going to get killed now over this. <laughs> I'm not Muslim, so we, we broke away from the Islamic sect like a thousand years ago. So what, what, are, um, what religion like, are you? So I'm Druze, and we're like uh, 5% of the population in Lebanon, Israel, and Syria. How do you spell that? So D-R-U-Z-E. And, and, and what, do, what do you guys believe? So um, we're very cool because we, we, we think everyone's pretty cool. So. <laughs> That's like Buddhism. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up as a Catholic in Catholic schools in Melbourne and uh, my parents, and I didn't know any different, you know, until I was older. So um, my parents really taught us to respect all religions. And um, then after moving to Middle East, I learned more about, you know, uh, Islam. And that's fine as well. I mean, we're, we're a peace generally a peace-loving religion that believes that all religions fundamentally are good and they preach a good message. And even some of our past leaders have been involved in Buddhism and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're sort of, you know, I guess the peacemakers, mostly. We are always existed in the mountains. 
Um, and it's a tough one. I mean, we have Druze people in the Israeli army, in the Lebanese army, in the Syrian army. And they're all loyal to their own countries, not to their... They are loyal to their religion in many respects, but they're also loyal to their countries that they serve in. Just as if as a Druze, I served in the Aussie army, you know, I'd be completely loyal to Australians, to Australia from that perspective. Yeah. What about uh, the UAE? Is that Sunni generally? Yeah, so the UAE is, um, is Sunni um, generally. But I mean, I know very senior people. Peter knows them as well. I don't know if he knows what religion they were, but they were Shiite guys, very senior in government. It's the UAE is very well balanced, Leon. Right. That way, mm. you know. You know, there's no religious prosecution. I mean, you can practice your religion. There's Christian churches there. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, was yeah. um um have they cancelled the Hajj this year? So um. Uh, I'm not an expert on that topic, Peter, but just from what I've read in the news is um, is I think they have, right? Mm. I think they've, they don't want all those. Yeah, that was my understanding. Congregating in Saudi, yeah. Mm. Okay. Hey, um, I want to touch on um, some of the COVID-19 stuff and just talk to you about, look, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago now and at that stage I, I, I picked up some frustration from talking to you. Uh, how's it playing out over there at the moment? What restrictions are in place and, and how is life generally under COVID-19? So we had, um, initially it was a two in the beginning of March, April, I think, yeah, beginning of April. So we had um, a hard lockdown basically for two, two weeks where um, we were pretty much just stuck at home. You could go do your, your grocery shopping um and there was a curfew and then two weeks after that they eased the curfew a little bit and then right now for the last week so since i think probably may 1st um between 6 a.m and 10 p.m it's business as usual you can go out as long as you're wearing a uh, a mask and um but what I found, but yeah, but it's also Ramadan. Uh, of course. So what they did is they sort of opened everything up during Ramadan. Now, for the people that don't know, the holy month of Ramadan for Islamic countries and for Muslims is basically they don't eat during between sunrise and sunset. So they, they fast between those hours. And so most people, I mean you know, just basically try and do as little as possible during that period. Mm. Um, and then, and fasting isn't just like that you don't eat or drink, but it's like, you know, you don't think any bad thoughts, you don't swear, you, um, you know, no sexual thoughts as well, because that could be breaking your fast as well, which is really interesting. Mm. But um, so anyway, so most, let's say, you know, most Muslims prefer to, that are, you know, observing the holy month of Ramadan, prefer to just sort of like take it really easy. So what happens is commercially, um, most companies cut down their working hours. So they'll have a six-hour workday instead of a nine-hour workday. And, um, and then people go home, you know, at 2 or 3 p.m. and then sleep for a few hours until sunrise, uh, sunset. And then they eat. So this is generally like the, those daytime. So 
take, let's say it a different way. With easing on the lockdown during this period, you already were going to make sure that you're going to have less sort of mingling during the daytime period. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is the nighttime period because Ramadan is a lot of fun once, you know, once the sun sets because families mm. get together, they usually, you know, they have a huge meal, almost like a feast. Um, a lot of families get together. Um, all, a lot of places, you know, around the beaches and the creeks and the rivers, not so much rivers here, but, you know, whatever they call them, um, get together and, you know, they smoke shisha and, and, you know, and just hang around playing chess and checkers and playing cards all night, you know, till two or three in the morning. So that's all gone. They've banned that. So you can only get together as a family and with a maximum number, I think, of 10 people. So what used to be fun during Ramadan of like getting together at night's gone now. They've, they've banned that as well. Well, and what are the infection rates there like at the moment? Um, oh, gosh. I think, I think they've got less than 200 dead. Something like various, you know, two, two, two and a half thousand infected or whatever. I honestly don't follow these numbers. I mean, I don't, I don't know how reliable they are. I'm not afraid of the disease at all. I think we had that chat. Um, <laughs> we did. You know, I mean, if I was 65 and a little bit sick with something, yeah, I'd, I'd be scared. But I think there's an overreaction worldwide to, to what's happening right now. But yeah, I think out of a population of 10 million people, they've got, you know, just over 100 people dead. Like, well, what is that? That's, we lost mm. more in car accidents. It just so. is just extraordinary. I, I honestly am finding it hard to believe that because Dubai, you know, is, is a massive aviation hub. I mean, mm. Emirates, you know, flies all over the world. Uh, and, and the disease was carried by effectively people and passenger planes, you know. So uh, it just seems extraordinary to me that, um, you know, that the infection rates are so low in Dubai. I just, I mean, what's happening with Emirates? Have they grounded the entire fleet or is it I think like Leon, I think, yeah, so I think Leon, we probably had the infection in November, December, and it's done. That's my, my belief because you're right, it's too low. And um, in a country where there's, you know, half a million people a week that mm. visit, um, you'd expect it to be a disaster here. And yeah. it's not. Um, for Emirates, they grounded everything. They grounded the whole fleet. My brother is a captain for Emirates. And, is that right? Um, what does he fly? Uh, 777s yeah. or the A380? Uh, 380. Right. A380, wow. yeah. So, um, and he's a tr he was starting to be a training captain. So, he's one of these really bright guys, bright young guys, one of the youngest guys actually to get to that level. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a shame. They grounded the whole fleet. The place is stalled. And you're right, Leon. I mean, if any place in the world was going to really suffer from it, it was here. And my belief is that in November and December and January, we got it and it was over and done with. Wow. You know, Do you think that's my that personal belief. Do you think part of that, though, is because um, while there are a lot of people that fly through Dubai Airport week on week, the percentage of transit passengers versus those who actually get off and stay in Dubai for a day or two would be different to a lot of other countries? Um, I mean, Peter, let's look at the numbers. I mean, I can't 
I was from a few years ago, but there's like 25 million plus. Mm. I think trans is actually it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's. I think it's, they have about a million transit passengers a week in in the UAE. Yeah, it's yeah something like right. that. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, Peter, look at all the look at all the support stuff you'd have. So, yeah, even if they were transit passengers and they were infectious, based on what we know about the way this this disease infects people, then you'd have airport stuff infecting everyone, right? True. You'd yeah. have the COVID on luggage, uh, COVID on, you know, on napkins and bench tops and tabletops and in mm. bathrooms and and no matter what you did, it's gonna get out here before anywhere else. Yep. But it's not serious here. So what's happening at Dubai Airport now? If Emirates is grounded, are there still other airlines coming in and out? Um, I don't. I I really don't know, but I think they've closed. They've closed the airport. Mm. Well, mate, I'm looking at the Worldometer, which tells you what's happening around the world. Uh, UAE. I love that website, by the way. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you were, you were spot on with your, your with your numbers for someone who's not looking at numbers. Uh, with them. <laughs> uh, deaths at 165 and current cases 16,240. But, oh, that's gone up a lot because current cases a week ago were very low. Well, I can tell yeah, so you. So that since they opened it up, it seems that that's gone up. Interesting. Uh, looking at and also, look- I think they were the number one, two, or three on the testing side, by the way, worldwide, behind Iceland. Oh, really? Or like, yeah, the the number one uh, tester in the world, number wow. two or three tester in the world. Yeah. Okay, because the, the the graph doesn't look like a COVID-19 graph. It is not expon- it's, it's almost linear. It doesn't look exponential at all. It's really weird. Uh, it, it, mm. As an outsider looking in and based on what I've seen of other countries, these numbers don't look right to me. Yeah, talking, so I mean, are they, uh, is it true? <laughs> are you, Leon? That's a I, 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 I'm just I'm making an observation. <laughs> But you're right, gosh, 1.2 million tests. So that's very... I can tell you something else. I mean, I worked in hospitals Mm -hmm. and they're all empty. This is something I wanted to touch on with you because I didn't say this at the start, but um, if you're not still, uh, until recently, you've you've been working with a... It's a private hospital, isn't it, in Dubai? Yes, yeah, so... I've been, I've been, I have a company which installs technology in hospitals and one of the things we were doing was we were helping them manage their um, elective surgeries mm-hmm. and they've dropped down. They've, they've gone to zero because the elective surgeries aren't allowed anymore and um, that's really hurting our business and hospitals are being hurt now because they've got no, they're not really making any money. No, we know very that, low numbers. Yeah, we know that uh, boob jobs and um, fat implants and all sorts of things are extremely popular in that part of the world. So yeah, yeah. I had to postpone my boob job. <laughs> <laughs> so why are the hospitals empty? So um, because elective surgeries aren't allowed. Okay. And elective is, um, I mean, like let's say even non-urgent surgeries. Yeah, not just elective surgeries. So basically, hospitals where their main revenue stream worldwide 
is on surgeries and a little bit on outpatient visits. They're both frozen up. People aren't going to the hospital unless no. they think they got COVID, right? Yep. And that's you see that in the US if you do hashtag film your own hospital like on Instagram. You can see the US as well. And I even saw a couple of days ago that the GDP of the US, um, the largest effect on the GDP is the lack of spending in healthcare. Imagine that. It's a healthcare crisis and the GDP is failing because their healthcare is crashed. Income is crashed. So are they... um are there certain hospitals in the UAE that are dedicated COVID-19 hospitals? Yeah, they've, they've highlighted some hospitals for COVID-19 patients. Okay. So what they've done, you, they've done is they've uh, quarantined like a couple of their wards where they just have dedicated staff to, to look after those wards. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, okay. that's, that's my understanding so far. Mm. But they, they've built some makeshift hospitals as well. I don't know what the status of them is. Mm. But my guess, guess only, is that they're, they're probably empty as well. Uh, maybe so you're pretty- right, uh, maybe you're right, mate, because, I mean, the amount of testing they're doing, you're absolutely spot on there. They're, they're the third in the world after the, the Faroe Islands. Uh, I've never heard of those islands. There's actually people in the Faroe Islands. It's like four guys there and three got tested. (laughs) Exactly. And and Iceland. So, yeah, they must be. Have you been tested? No. (laughs) I reckon I've probably already already had it. My brother's been tested twice. I mean, working for Emirates. So they identified that one of his flights had people on it that were positive and then just one good they tested him and he was and i mean and my whole uh, he's a cool i mean he was like i he was almost hoping that he'd already had it as well so he didn't have to worry about it he's Mm. not worried about it at all it's just that his daughter at home she's about three like always gets his fevers and she gets them quite seriously that's the only reason he's a bit worried about it but otherwise i mean any rational person under 60 that's considerably healthy, I mean, actually just normal healthy, um, it's, it's really got nothing to worry about when you look at these numbers, mm-hmm. you know. They've got nothing to worry about. Where's your brother based? Where's and him? I think people need to be, sorry? Where's your brother based? Um, so, yeah, he's based in Dubai um, okay. in a place called Maidan. Yep. You probably, I don't know if you remember it or not. I remember Maidan, yep. Yeah, so that's where... The, the famous horse races. I was going to say, I used to play so, golf um, there when it was yeah. called Natal Sheba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. Back yep. in the day. Same place. Yeah. So, talk, okay, let's talk about the Emirates. Uh, how many are there? Seven? So there's 10, 10 million population. No, no, wise, how, how, many, how, how many Emirates are there? It says, you, you know, the United Arab Emirates. Well, so United- it's seven. <laughs> seven. It's. It's seven emirates, so they were um, they were spread along the coastline, right? And um, you had an amazing, amazing visionary leader that came up around the time of oil called Sheikh Zayed. Right. He's really loved by not only people of the United Arab Emirates but all over the Middle East. A lot of uh, so politically, this guy was amazing. So he was able to bring these tribes that in the past they probably feuded 
Um, they had feuded. A lot of them bought mm. them together under uh, one country called the United Arab Emirates. And he wasn't only politically strong, but I mean, there are rumors of, of him. I don't know if you've heard these ones, Peter, but like, you know, he could grab like a dirham, which is a 20 cent coin sort of thing, mm. or 10 cent, probably a 10 cent coin. And he could just sort of fold it up in his fingers. What? Wow. He was physically a very powerful person as well. Mm. Um, what was it made out of? And yeah. Gold. It's made out of it's the like toughest a metal on the planet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was an Iron Man. He, I mean, he basically, so these he had are some, some chocolate rumors, ones made yeah. for when he needed to prove a point. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so so uh, you said what seven seven Emirates? Can you can you rattle off what they are? Yeah. So you have uh, Ras Al Khaimah, which is um, I think. What does it translate to English? Like the top of the tent. Okay. So I guess I may, I don't know, it must have been a peak. You have Dubai, Abu Dhabi, which are the ones that most people know. Yeah. Um, then you have the smaller ones like Umar Kawain and right. stuff like that. Yeah. Well, so they play cricket in one of those places, don't they? Which one is that? Sharjah. Sharjah. Sharjah, Sharjah right. is probably the th- second or third largest emirate. So, so we yeah. when I when I first moved to Dubai, I actually didn't live in Dubai. That was well before I met you. I lived in Ajman. Okay. Which is where Channel 4 is based. And okay. to try and explain... Save money people, on rent. Yeah, exactly, yeah. To try and explain <laughs> to people, I remember I had this farcical situation. So back then, you could turn up as an Australian, your, your employer would write you a letter, you took a couple of photos, your Australian licence, your Australian passport, you walk into the local police station at Ajman and they'd literally hand you a licence, okay, a local licence. Even though you're driving the right side of the road. I'd never seen a left-hand drive vehicle before, Leon. (laughs) And when I was doing my eye test, the girl was sitting at the counter, said, yeah, look at this thing, which I had to read the numbers and letters, whatever it was. There was streaming light coming from the sun behind her that was blinding me while I was trying to read this thing. <laughs> so I walk out the door and I look at my license and <clears throat> I noticed there was an inconsistency on there. Now, what I didn't realise at that time was the spelling of your name is completely irrelevant, right? They, they, they don't care. But there was a problem with my country of origin. So I said to the fella from work that took me there, can you just wait a second? I need to go back in and talk to the lady. So I walked back up to the counter and she says, yes. I said, oh, um, there's, a, there's a mistake on my licence. And she looked at my licence and where it should have said Australia, it said Austria. And she said, yes, what's the problem? I said, I'm from Australia. And she looked at it and she basically looked at me like I was an idiot. I said, that, that says Austria. And she said, oh, oh. So she tapped away on her computer, had a look, and then she looked up at me and she said, I'm sorry, sir, there is no Australia. Wow. (laughs) And I walked out and for the entire time I lived there, I was Peter from Austria. And I I jokingly said to my boss, because the big threat over there is that if you do the wrong thing, you'll get get deported. And I said at a management meeting one day, it's brilliant because if I ever get deported, I'll get a free trip to Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so as I understand, Abu Dhabi is the capital. Is that right, Wasam? Yeah, Abu Dhabi is the capital. 
Okay. And, so and there's, there's a, yeah, go ahead now. I was going to say, and Abu Dhabi is only about 50 Ks or so from Dubai, right? A hundred. hundred Ks away. Really? That, okay. Yeah, an, an hour, an hour okay. away. So can you explain to me why a city that's only a hundred kilometers away from Dubai has its own international airline in the form of Etihad? Um, okay, so from an airline perspective, um, do you, have you heard of Gulf Airlines? Gulf no. Airways? Uh, I think so, yeah. So if you go back to 25 years ago, um, the GCC, the Gulf countries, which yeah. are Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, Oman, anyway, a few of them, five, six countries got together and made their own airline. And um, it was it's based out of Bahrain at the time. Hmm. So you go back 25, 30 years ago, Bahrain, I think, was the most successful Gulf country that decided to start up this GCC airline. Um, for whatever reason, um, Emirates thought it could do a better job, which it proved itself, I think it could. Uh, Dubai started up their own airline, and that, that triggered a lot of the other Gulf countries to start doing the same thing and take their reliance of this like regional airline to a country-based one. And Leon, I honestly don't know the reasoning. I mean, I'm just sure it, I guess it's a political one because there's a lot of healthy competition between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Mm. So Dubai's pretty much been not only a regional leader, but I think a worldwide leader in the way it does a lot of things. Mm. And, um, in the last 10 to 15 years, Abu Dhabi seems to want to do the same thing. Mm. And in many areas, like, I mean, I work in healthcare. If you look at healthcare in Abu Dhabi, I mean, those guys are world leaders. Mm. Um, I know a lot of them personally. They're amazing in what they do and how they approach different things. But, um, yeah, and I think they just decided to, to have their airline. They're called the Etihad yes. and competing against Emirates. But... Emirates is huge. I mean, Emirates has done such an amazing job, right? Mm. Yeah. I think too that um, uh, I, I, I would suspect there's a bit of a, um, a peeing competition in part of that and uh, <laughs> because there's a healthy competition between the Emirates, uh, particularly Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I think also historically um, there was a bit of a hoo-ha about the fact that Etihad can call themselves the, the nation's airline, uh, whereas Emirates, you know, can't do that. And the uh, the royal family of Abu Dhabi, who are the rulers of the UAE, uh, I guess they, they've they got the, the oil money, don't they, we said? Yeah, and um, they have the oil money and also they, and they support all the other Emirates in a lot of the infrastructure. Mm. So, from what I've heard, is a lot of the roads and a lot of the infrastructure is actually supported by that main family, the capital. Yep. But having said that, it is healthy competition because they all really get along quite well. Mm. There's no borders. You you see things change as you cross the borders. Mm. You know, mainly you know, like Abu Dhabi was a bit greener, I guess. And going to Ajman's like going back to 1975, if you want to see what that's like. Yeah, yeah, that's a mess. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so. And, and there's also different things like Ajman and like Sharjah, for example, which is, so you have Dubai, then you have Sharjah and Ajman physically. 
Sharjah is a dry emirate. Right. Um, dry Ajman, meaning you don't drink alcohol. You, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. in Ajman, you can buy it from a liquor store. Right. Mm. Dubai is not dry, but you can only buy it if you have a license. So you yeah. have to have permission in a way. But then Abu Dhabi is, you don't need a license, you just buy it. And yeah. it's a bit weird because in an hour, or an hour and 20 minutes, you could drive through all those yeah. areas, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so you could pick up the alcohol in Ajman, get pulled over in Charger, get really screwed over for having the alcohol. But if you'd managed to drive another 5Ks, no one would have said anything. So yeah. Yeah, it's a bit weird that way. But very, very cool. You know, but but pretty understanding to be, to be so. You, but you talked about everyone getting along. But I think um, you know, based on some of the things that I've read in, in, over the last few years, Qatar is not is not uh, being treated very nicely by its neighbours <laughs> or its brothers. Yeah. So Qatar is an interesting one because mm. I think Qatar. Um, I mean, I used to work for multinationals where I worked in all those in all the GCC countries. You know, travel to two or three of them a week, rotate, you know, rotate around. At least in a month, I'd visit all the GCC countries. Mm. So I don't know the exact story about Qatar. Um, it's, but the rumors are that they had some nefarious intentions from an extremism perspective to, although they're not an extremist country at all, but mm. let's say an arm to disrupt the way the other GCC countries function. Mm. And um, there are ties into like these groups that are not very well trusted and extremist in nature. Mm. Um, came as sort of a, came out in the open um, at some stage and then Saudi, UAE, um, all the other GCC countries, all the, they, they rebelled against uh, Qatar. And they basically said, we don't want anything to do with you anymore. Mm. And so even though part of this uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, that's what GCC stands for, um, they've been excluded. I hope they get back in. I mean, you know, I have friends there. They're good people. I don't know how accurate that those politics are in terms of the way I understand them. But there was a serious backlash from Saudi UAE because apparently they'd found there was some sort of – they were supporting some extremists on the ground that were hidden in these Gulf countries, you know, like sleeper cells or something. Oh, That's the rumor. I don't know how true it is. But, but the reaction was harsh. And if you look at Al Jazeera, which is almost looks like that's CNN, mm. you know, yep. fake news. Mm. Um, I think, you know, that was another, yeah, that was another thing. Well, once upon a time as well, um, Qatar was invited to be part of the UAE when, when the UAE formed. Correct. So um, so we're talking about the United Arab Emirates, what Leon mentioned. Yep. So Qatar was looked at as it could be one of those other Emirates. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Peter. Mm. And for whatever reason... But they rejected they, and they, they went out in their own. Yeah. But I'd, I'd like to um, sort of touch on a couple of things more specific to Dubai and, and the ruling family. Um we, we in the Western world have, have, you know, seen and heard several stories that have been surfacing in, in, in recent years. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Sheikh Mohammed's one of his wives has, has sort of taken off to 
the UK and, and taken a couple of the kids and and a couple of his daughters, um, uh, you know, uh, through trying to leave the country on a permanent basis have, have been rumoured to have, have uh, essentially been abducted by their own father. Uh, is there any talk of that in the country? No. I, I honestly know and a few of those videos. I really don't know much about it at all. Yep. The only thing I know is that she had one pretty nice place to see it from the coast. It was like a little island with a mansion on it and, and these huge yeah. yachts and boats. And yeah. I mean, you know, what? <laughs> she left a pretty nice place. So maybe it was serious for her to have to leave that to, mm. to, to run away. I, but, you know, I, you know, Peter, I mean, I, it's not in the news here for sure. No. And then international, I don't know what to believe anymore on any level from a news yeah. perspective, yeah. just because of how much fake news I've seen everywhere. Mm. So I have no idea what the story is. Mm. Zero. Because within um, the country, he's I can just loved. tell you generally that he's a very well-liked person, though. Yeah. That's all I can tell you. He's generally yeah. very well-loved, very well-liked, um, travels in the country freely, uh, very minimal sort of security detail, sometimes without security at all. Mm. And the guy's respected and well-liked. Mm. But his personal life or how he treats his wives or women, no idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly my experience is that, that he was always, you know, very well spoken of, very much loved by locals. And, you know, on, on a world scale, and um, even people to this day, from time to time when I talk about having been there and lived there and that, they don't realise that Dubai is not the capital of the UAE. So he's done a very good job of, of, you know, building their profile internationally. Yeah, definitely. And on the women thing, I mean, even just from a personal note, looking at friends when, you know, things go sour in their marriage, mm. you know, I mean, it's not, not pretty, right? It's just going to be that much harder when... I guess, you know, it's out in the open. Yep. But, um, yeah, but you're right. He's done an amazing job. Um, the country, it's an amazing place. You're well-respected, a uh, good amount of freedom. I mean, I think it's probably leading the world from a surveillance perspective, electronically, I'd, I'd say. Which okay. is not personally something that I love, but you never feel that. Yep. And you're never questioned or asked or spoken to or, or treated unfairly or anything in whichever way unless you've probably done something wrong, mm. um, you know, committed a crime. So it's a great place to live, a great place to bring up children as well safely. Um, yes. My three boys are born here. Um, the only thing I would probably worry about is that they're probably growing up too soft. You know, mm. too trusting, too soft. No, not more than that. It's just a, yep. a nice, safe place to raise a family. Yeah. Mm. And um, how are things coming along? Um, I mean, when I left, the, the, the Palm Jumeirah was complete. Uh, the Palm Deera was basically on hold, same with Jebel Ali. And most of the big building projects had been put on hold. Well, we're talking a decade now. So where, where have those projects got to, the, the Palms specifically, and then the other major building projects? So I th there was a period, I think, between maybe 2010, 2011 till last year where 
it, all those major projects were pretty much completed. Um, the Palm projects, like, so the major projects were done. The Palm projects yep. specifically, so you have the Palm, which is the most famous one, um, which is the, I think the infrastructure is there, but I don't think they've got many projects on them yet. Okay. But you can drive there. I mean, you can get on them. And there's been, since you left Peter as well, there's been a lot of other smaller islands that they've built. Oh, wow. You know, closer to the Palm yep. Jumeirah, the, the, the original one. Mm. So like Blue Waters and stuff like that. Beautiful places. Mm. Yeah, really nice places. And then uh, they also complete another project, which was um, areas out of Dubai, actually. Like areas that are 50 years old plus. They demolished houses and... Wow. They um they they built a canal there and that's that's really pretty actually. With a oh, lot of bridges that, and stuff that you can that, go. Yeah, is that through the old um, uh, coming coming off the Gulf through? Is it like Satwa and those areas? Jumeirah. Oh, through Jumeirah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So Jumeirah, Jumeirah area. Okay. Where the yeah, yeah. that's yeah, no. really beautiful. It's really nice. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um. So tourism's obviously non-existent at the moment, is it? It seems that way. I mean, Emirates is grounded. Um, I I live in an area where I can see planes, and I mean, I see one a day. Mm. So I, I'm pretty sure that you know air, all the airlines are, are grounded here. So yeah. it's it's done, and I I don't know what I don't know people that were stuck here or whatever how they get out, but I also know the hotels are. A lot of them are closed. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah, yeah, it's the place. Place has come to a, a grounding halt. It must be an absolute dream to go out and drive at the moment in Dubai. Yeah, I wish I had my HSV running, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's nice. I mean, I go out with. Uh, I've got a couple of electric scooters. Those um, they're mm -hmm. really cool, actually. So I usually go out with one of my boys um, for an hour or two every day. And it's nice and quiet, and the air's clean, and you know, the, it's it's nice to get out. Mm. But it's sort of a bit sad as well, just seeing it running masks. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, if it was my personal choice, I wouldn't care. I would just take it off, and I'd lick a toilet seat. Even I really don't. I'm not afraid of this thing. <laughs> I'm really yeah, not right. afraid. Of it. So masks are mandatory, are they? Yeah, the master mandatory, Leon. So yeah. it's like a thousand dirham fine. It's about three hundred Australian dollars. Um, wow. If you're outside without a mask, yeah. So you, do you live close to the to uh, the Diera, the uh, the Bradison Blue Diera? Um, yeah, I don't know why you're asking me that, but probably like fifteen minutes away. Right, because is, is there something there. in the news about that? Oh, no, I, okay. I, I stayed at that hotel when I was in Dubai once, uh, and the one—that's a pretty that, seedy hotel, isn't it, Leon? Is it? I, I thought I was with my wife, mate, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I tell you one thing that I just loved at that hotel, mate, was the was the Asila uh, restaurant. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, no, I haven't. It's a, it's, a, it's a it's basically a Middle Eastern, uh, you know, um, traditional. Food that you eat in Dubai, um, 
but it was just amazing, man. I love Middle Eastern cuisine. It's the lamb is just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the, the, Dubai, like Melbourne, in a lot of respects, food-wise, is amazing. You know, right, right. I mean, you have the best restaurants in the world here. Right. So if you want to, you know, you want to get some good food, yeah, yeah, that's something you're gonna get for sure. From um, any cuisine, my wife and I still laugh about, um, as as you know, when when we last lived there, we were in Media City, and we discovered this nice little Indian restaurant about, you know, five minutes drive from from where we lived. So we decided one night on a Friday night or Saturday night to go and get some Indian, and <clears throat> while they were making our dinner, just to uh, just to make conversation, I said to the bloke, um, oh, which, which part of India is, uh, is your food from? And he, he looked over the counter at me and he said, not India. And I said, hey, which part? He said, not India. I go, oh, right, so it's not from India. He goes, no, 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 not India. He just kept saying it over and over again. I eventually realized he was saying North India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. So that's less, uh, less spicy, right, the North Indian yeah, food? Yeah, correct. I love yeah. Indian food. I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, definitely on the top of my list for mm. the stuff that I love to eat. Now, we say um, one of the things that Australians always talk about, no matter where they are, uh, but no, no more than those in the Northern Territory, of course, is the weather. And uh, Leon's been giving it to me the last few weeks because I'm stuck in Victoria where the weather's terrible and, and they're just starting to enjoy the beautiful dry season. But as it's, uh, as it's approaching mid-May, I imagine she's getting a little hot there now. Yeah, getting into the mid-30s and we'll... Over the next two to three weeks, we'll get into the high 40s. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. You know, I'd give anything, Peter, for Melbourne weather. Melbourne has the best weather in the world. <laughs> you wake up every morning not knowing exactly what it's going to be like. <laughs> you know, like that is, I know people hate that, but for me, that was one of the pleasures in life that I miss. Wow. I love I love feeling when the southerlies kick in, you know. Oh, you have a mid-30s day and all of a sudden a cool breeze hits you. Mm. Uh, I love that. I miss that a lot. It's so Cruise predictable here. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, it's just so hot here. The, yeah. Like generally, Dubai weather is amazing because you have, mm. you know, eight, nine months of the year where it's just beautiful. Mm. You know, every day's a beach day. Um, every day's an outdoor day and you're, you're fine, you know. Maybe it rains four or five times a year. Um, but summer is terrible. Those mm. two and a half, three months of summer, you're stuck indoor, AC. No matter how brave you think you are, it's just too hot to go out day and night. Yeah. Um, and nighttime is just really muggy and humid and hot and disgusting. Yeah. Whereas, That's... you know, and people say, you know, oh, well, you know, mid 40s, high 40s. It, a lot of countries have that sort of weather, but. A lot of those countries have a beautiful cool evening to follow up the day, Correct. and you don't have that here. Yeah, and they don't have it every day for three months, and that's the <laughs> thing that I know. Like people from Perth and Adelaide, and that they get their mid forties days, but they might get three or four on the trot, and then they'll get a cool breeze and a you know a a cool change. But uh, every day 
for yeah best part of three months. It's it is pretty hot. And you're right. I, I always remember um, my first time there, and at night during that sort of September October when it's starting to cool down, but it's still quite humid at night. And the cool buildings with the AC inside with the hot outside and that almost like the Chinese water window look in the front windows. It's just that hot yeah. that the, the, the two elements are fighting with each other. Yeah, and, and you wear glasses, right? So how many of those foggy... Yeah. Those, you, they, you walk outside and all of a sudden yeah. your glasses are <laughs> fog up and you can't see anything. And Yeah. 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 I was there in October and I remember going for a walk uh, with them and... When I came back, I am not joking when I tell you I didn't. The, the soles of my of my shoes had literally melted off. <laughs> <laughs> they just came off right off. Uh, so it, it, I think the pavement must be you know a hundred degrees plus or something. You know. Yeah. It's funny. You just reminded me of something, Leon. I remember once in Melbourne there was like a forty-five degree day of 42, 43. And uh, I was with my brother in the car, and we hit the brakes at a traffic light, <laughs> and the car kept moving because the the top of the road the had separated right. from the bottom. Yeah, oh, right. like the tire they'd used just yeah. sort of melted, and yep. you know uh, we don't have that problem here. But yeah, but with shoes you're screwed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's why there's so many shoe shops in Dubai. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, mate, it's it's been great talking to you. Um, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting perspective because, as I said at the start, we haven't heard anything out of the Middle East uh, or, or Africa, really, and uh, we were both intrigued to find out. And I, I said to Leon, well, I know just the man to, to talk to. Um, you know, he'll give us a good idea. And, and as Leon said, without even looking at the numbers, you pretty much knew what they were anyway. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, I'll reiterate, I don't care about the numbers. I think they're all bullshit all over the world. <laughs> get out of your homes, get back to normal life. Love Jesus or whoever you believe in and um I think you I think you've got a job in the get White House, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think uh, I think Donald Trump has the right idea, but um I surrounded by a lot of people that are are not, are not there yet. So <laughs> But yeah, come on guys. I mean, I really, I feel that, you know, as a people now, we, we need to get out and do something and, and get back to normal because this is not the right way forward for sure. Mm. All right, well, thank Sam. Thanks uh, very much. Uh, and uh, we appreciate your time on the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.